0: As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend.
1: Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in the impeccable Georgian neoclassical elegance of the assembly rooms in Bath as part of the wonderful two-week riot of words and music that is the Bath Festival. I'm John Mitchinson,
0: the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they want to read, And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Thanks for coming, everyone, today. Joining us today, we have a panel of three experts. Uh, The public are allegedly tired of experts, but we don't believe that's the case. And we've got absolute top-of-the-shop experts for you today. First of all, we are joined by Rachel Heath. Rachel Heath is a novelist whose book, The Finest Type of English Womanhood, was shortlisted for the Costa novel... Since then, you have published a second novel, which is called Part of the Spell. And also, Rachel, and you'll want to show your appreciation in the traditional manner, Lives in Bath. Yes! Yay! Also joining us today is Arifa Akbar. Arifa is a journalist and critic. She is head of content at Unbound and editor of the literary magazine Boundless. She is a returning guest to Backlisted, having joined us earlier this year to talk about Hilary Mantel's Beyond Black and our final guest she's the mascot of this festival in bath <laughs> <laughs> alex clark she is a literary journalist editor and broadcaster and artistic director of words and literature at the bath festival so this is her fault she too is a returning guest having joined us 2 years ago for a discussion of jill tweedy's letters from a faint-hearted feminist having to borrow my copy uh, because she just interviewed don delillo and given it to him or something about right. It is about. That's fairly <laughs> that's about, accurate, that's isn't fairly it? That fairly fair. is fairly um, fair. Yeah. So, John, what are we talking
1: um, about today? The book that uh, this powerhouse panel is uh, going to discuss today is Angela Carter's popular, hugely influential collection of stories, *The Bloody Chamber*, first published in 1979 by Victor galantz and a book I think that she largely wrote while living in Bath. Some Was of it? the stories are written in Bath, Some aren't, aren't they? they yeah. yeah. And we would normally, at this point in the podcast, I would normally ask Andy what he'd been reading, but we thought it might be more appropriate, given the news last night of the death of Philip Roth, arguably at the very least one of the great and most influential modern novelists. It seemed like a good opportunity for us to touch on and reflect on the astonishing legacy, 31 books, I think, uh, that he left behind him. I know you're a fan, Andy.
0: Yes. As my, myself, Andy Miller, a writer, as a creative individual, uh, who, as he approaches senescence, begins to feel that the pointlessness of it is really crashing in, I look at Philip Roth and I think, well, Philip Roth, you probably wrote your four best books in the decade between your 65th birthday and your 75th. And He has that great line, doesn't he? That old
1: age isn't a battle, it's a massacre. Um, but presumably sorry I interrupted you you were going to say
0: well no I just the ones I'm going to mention are probably the ones which are most widely talked about as the masterpieces of that era those are Sabbath Theatre American Pastoral The Human Stain and The Plot Against America and one of the things that's so remarkable about those four books is that they do four different things they're all Recognisably by Philip Roth. They have that incredible... I was saying to somebody this morning about American Pastoral. I remember the first time I read American Pastoral. And I kept thinking, how is he doing this? How is he maintaining the intensity of the prose? How is he able to turn out one career-best sentence after another for page after page after True. page? So I think he was operating at the peak of his powers comparatively late in his life, which is something that... A lot of writers probably don't do. In fact, they might have done their best work by the time they're in their mid to late fifties. Yeah, that's that's usually the,
1: the thought, isn't it? That the, the kind of there's a middle period where they produce their best work and then it tails off. But there are other artists, in other I mean, you know, late paintings, thinking of music, Beethoven and his late quartets. But Roth it is, uh, but those books in particular, they are then after that sort of sixties period, he's published what I hadn't realised until. Uh, I was looking at obituaries this morning. He's published five novels since the last one that I read, which is The Plot Against America, which was 2004, I think. I mean, it's it's pretty astonishing to be producing books at that that rate. I mean, let's say he had a 60-year kind of career. He's produced a book every two years. Mm -hmm. And not just kind of, you know, these are not sagas. I mean, these are seriously considered... He announced
2: considered. his retirement, didn't he? Yeah. And you wonder, almost, is he saying it to himself? Mm. You know, I can stop and stop. Which is quite an unusual thing to do, to When announce did he
0: retire, Rachel? No, Was it
3: long ago, too? two, three years? And he did actually retire. He's not like the rock stars who say, I'm retiring, then they have a comeback concert. <laughs> I think he really meant... There may be a Absolutely. reason for that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they don't get to Phil Hyde Park, the writers, even when they
4: bit it wrong. Yeah. No, but in
2: a way, everyone doubted him, sort of said, oh, he's just doing this, because yeah. then he's going to come back and say, oh. But he actually, no, it was a formal requirement mm. he obviously made of himself. But look, but if, if you're you, that prolific, perhaps you would. You are
5: talking about his great books and his late style. I haven't mentioned the book that... It's actually his most famous book, Portnoy's Complaint. You can mention all these books, and you still haven't mentioned Portnoy's Complaint. Which, I, ha- which I have read, read for a long time ago. shows how much stuff there is.
3: Mm.
0: Do you think... I mean, it's hard to know, isn't it? Certainly, had he died 20 years ago, he would be known for Portnoy's Complaint mm. as one of the most important novels of the second half of the 20th century in America.
5: And it would be real nerds like you and me who'd be going, well, actually... You should read Goodbye, Columbus. Goodbye,
0: Columbus, <laughs> yeah.
5: <laughs> you know, we'd all be quibbling about the, the best of the rest.
1: You... But
0: then, as I say, he has this incredible, you know, purple patch. With, and I didn't... There's other books as well. The thing... There's so many... The, I Married a Communist is another... Yeah. Which I haven't read before. Have you read The Human Stain? How many people on this panel have read The I've, Human Stain? I've,
3: I think it's probably my favourite, um, and, and I love American Pastoral, but The Human Stain really, it was the first book I came across. It was about, it was he published in 2000, didn't he? And it was, I was in a book group filled with um, gender theorists, mainly women of colour, mainly, you know, gay studies women. So these are all sort of academics and they're really hot on gender. And I don't know who dared to suggest The Human Stain, but someone <laughs> did. And I thought, this is going to be savage. And I th- thought, I'm going to be savaging it too. Um, because we'd obviously heard about his much disputed, reputed um, misogyny, or his portrayal of women, mm. his, um, his, his interesting portrayal of women, to, to keep it diplomatic. And um, I read it, and I, there were, I was mesmerised by the actual writing, and then I became mesmerized by the fact... I mean, he always takes the American dream, doesn't he? And he dismantles it in some way or other. But I, I thought he... it was. I was astonished by the fact that he dared to take the American dream uh, and look at black American mas- masculinity because it could have gone so wrong for a Jewish American writer <clears throat> to be taking that on, to be taking on race, the alleged racism that Coleman Silk is fighting... And that, that was one thing. And I thought he did that magnificently. And then this 70-year-old man, male professor of classics, is, you know, has an affair with a cleaner half his age and she's dancing in front of him. And I thought, here it goes, here it is. And there are those scenes where you think, yeah, you know, he's doing male desire beautifully, but look at the way those women are. But, but I kind of read a lot of the other stuff after The Human Sten and I thought, you don't go to... Philip Roth to examine women's desire. He, what he does is he explores male desire so beautifully, yeah. exquisitely, with all its ego egotism and its vulnerabilities and its frailties. So I think I fell in love with him through the human stain.
1: He's a high risk writer. The um, scene that I always think of, it's got friends who dislike intensely, is the deathbed scene in Sabbath Theatre they're remembering their, the affair and, and them going into a, a stream and pissing on each other. He talks about this as the wrong right subject. You know, he said, I don't think I could write a better deathbed scene than that. It's the wrong, the wrong right subject. And that's the thing about Roth. There are, you know, there's a woman dying in the bed and there's a man and they're talking about some sort of odd... And, but the brilliant thing is, he said, he kind of figures through the retelling of the story. If you haven't read Sabbath Theatre, Mickey, Sabbath he's right up there with the the worst characters in literature and he kind of concedes that she was rather better at it than he was <laughs> this mutual pissathon and I it is completely wrong and bad and awful and terrible but it is also an incredibly moving scene and if you the genius of someone like roth he can take you to a place like that and have you still weirdly on his side there will be, I mean, you know, famously Carmen Khalil walked out of the panel mm. when he was going to be awarded the International um, Man Booker Prize saying that, you know, none of his work
0: it was so disfigured by his attitude to women that it, he, he shouldn't get any awards. Our and, late friend um, David Miller had a theory about um, she, Alex is laughing I can't, don't know well, if you know Not the theory, that she published theory. Claire Bloom's
1: autobiography, so yeah, she would say I, that, wouldn't yeah. she?
0: He had a theory about the, the misapprehension of what Roth, what the root of Roth's perceived misogyny was, which I can't—I'm not actually going to say. <laughs> if you—if you—if you, if you, you, can't if do you that. If what? Fifty you, years after you're dead, you'll see you press number. the red button now. <laughs> you can hear me say it. I'm going to say it. Do you know what? I'm going to say it when we finish recording, yeah, just to make right. everyone at home feel bad. Um, should we? I think we've. I think that's the most. Huge in Philip Roth could w- have wished for hearing us. Quack, quack <laughs> I'm, 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 just too, I'm just,
1: I'm just, pleased that so many people have come out and, and have said what an extraordinarily important to right to is. Yeah, I don't think you can read him
2: and not. It's it like not admiration. liking Bergman
1: or not liking Shakespeare, in my view. Let's pick this up again shortly.
5: Hey, welcome to IKEA. Where even this desk is circular. Huh? How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle.
0: Get started at ikea-usa.com circular. Visit ikea-usa.com circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. So, Rachel, we are. you were saying something really interesting earlier about the, the, the thing that Roth is writing about in relation to the things that Angela Carter yes. is writing about. So why don't we use that as our way into talking nice. about The Bloody Chamber?
2: Yes, yeah, so, which is desire, yeah. and which is exactly right. And what she undertakes to do, I think, is to write some fairy stories to reimagine them and to fuel them with a new kind of, with a female desire. And a lot of the stories in the whole collection are about really, I think, trying to examine ideas around desire and agency. And the idea, I think, underpins a lot of it, is that a lot of the women are imperiled when they're passive. And so what she's beginning to open up and resolve and find a new myth, to break the myth of passivity, and is to say, well, let's become more active. Let's discover our sexual selves. And to write fables and archetypes and stories in which this engine has been lit and is going to cause some chaos and some joy and some excitement and some dread and I think mm. that's what desi- the function of desire in these stories.
3: I think you're right, and I, but I think she complica- I think she's trickier than just saying, you know, here's women's desire mm. and here's yes. emancipating it. I think she's quite tricksy, so she's sort of playing a little bit. So, in uh, the, the the title story, the, the Bloody Chamber, you get a lot about her desires. She's this seventeen-year-old, and you know, she's marrying this far older billionaire man. And the, the bluebird uh, story, mm. and and um, you, you, she sees herself through a lot of mirrors, and she's constantly s- seeing how much he desires her. She's defining her own desire, but ha- by how much a man wants her and tells her he loves her. And I think he, she's interrogating what female desire is. She's saying, is the sum total of our desire ha- how we relate to? The man who loves us and lusts after us or is there something else beyond the mirrors there's something really kind of clear in her
5: desire which is that it's not entirely sexual desire i mean she wants to be wealthy she has a very impoverished upbringing she goes away from the mother who loves her her father is dead and pushed by she's the nurse absolutely absolutely uh entranced by the wealth you know it's such a sensual
2: story, I mean yeah. it's every bit of material. I think can I there's a really important bit about it as well. Can I,
0: Yes I think just can, quickly but I want to ask the audience something first. Go. How many people here have read The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter? Everyone. <laughs> Actually, no, most of you have read it. And how many people here think The Bloody Chamber is Angela Carter's best book?
1: Ooh. That's oh interesting. Gosh.
0: Well, sort of one and a half, that was.
5: <laughs> How many people think it's not not her best book? <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Do you know what I mean? That made my brain hurt. Well, How gonna, many people
0: think it's her worst book, is what uh, Alex uh. was trying to say.
5: I wasn't. Actually, no, I wasn't. I was saying, it's not something... Because I think you go to the novels, don't you? When you say what's the best book, you go to the novels. Mm. And I don't think... I'd be surprised if anybody or very many readers thought it was her worst book.
1: It was, I mean, it, it was certainly the book, I think, that established her reputation mm. beyond all. I mean, she had published mm. Infernal Desire Machine. She'd published The Magic Toy Shop at the end of the 60s. But it got uniformly uh, ecstatic reviews, including one from Oberon War, who thought that the, the very, very funny story, Puss in Boots, was one of the, the great comic triumphs of prose in the 20th century, which is, you know unlooked-for praise from a from a strange quarter but it did it did cement and I think it's hard to it's hard I was talking about this with my wife this morning it's hard to remember a time when fairy tales weren't part of the mainstream in fiction you know you're coming out of the 70s and a lot of social realism and we hadn't all been reading um, Italo Calvino you know, we hadn't had Midnight's Children. We hadn't. A lot of people, even at that stage, hadn't read much Marquez. It came out as sort of the pu- end of the, the sort of the punk era. I see the book as a sort of a kind of a punk cover album of fairy tales. I want to just
0: read the blurb because if anybody hasn't read this or doesn't know what the the setup for the Bloody Chamber is, it, this is a very short blurb on the Vintage Classics edition. It says, "From familiar fairy tales and legends." Red Riding Hood, Bluebeard, Puss in Boots, Beauty and the Beast, Vampires and Werewolves, Angela Carter has created an absorbing collection of dark, sensual, fantastic stories. I'd never read The Bloody Chamber until January or February this year. I thought I knew what it was. I could have probably written that blurb myself without having read it. It's not that at all. I'm not saying that blurb is wrong, but the depth of it and the range of it and the, the, the extent to which it and she refuse to be pigeonholed totally. when she is one of the most egregiously pigeonholed writers yes. of okay. the last 50 years. Yes. I think that's exactly it's right. Fascinating, right? Can yeah. I ask Rachel? Yes. Where and when did you first encounter the Bloody Chamber or Angela Carter?
2: Yes, I first encountered... 1980s, obviously, sort of young teenager, The Magic Toy Shop, I think, was the first one I read. And I found it quite horrifying and overwhelming. And she was too on point to read Angela Carter as an adolescent. It was was quite a stimulating and I actually found it slightly overwhelming and thought, no, I need to go back to read much more formal things. This is she's out of control. Which is a feature of me as an adolescent. And then my (laughs) next thing was in fact a very Angela Carter experience, which is why I feel this kinship with her, as I was living in a boarding house in Cambridge, and I was doing my A-levels there, and I walked past a theatre, and there was a sign up saying, auditioning today, the company of wolves. And I thought... I'll do that. <laughs> so in I walked and went in, and I said, How hey, I'd like to be in your play. I am one of Angela Carter's bold girls, apparently. This orphan who's walked in and said, I'd like to be in your play. And I got a part. I didn't think, this is a university production. Why would I be in it? In I went, and I got the part. And then I wandered around in a shift covered in blood, looking <laughs> like a sort of... <laughs> You know, adolescent. I, they must have thought, oh, great, we'll have her. <laughs> have her and then, but then I thought, what am I doing, wandering around in a shift covered in blood? And I went back and then I read the collection. Do you think there's any
5: adaptation of an Angela Carter piece of work that wouldn't be okay if you were wearing a shift covered in blood? <laughs> this is, the liberation. Not, not, this is sure. the liberation. I'm not sure. I think just, that would go
2: for everybody, is <laughs> yeah. not it? yeah.
0: Alex, can you remember a time in your reading life well, before Angela Carter?
5: Andy, I know you're brigging me. This is because you said, before I'm going to ask you when you first encountered Angela Carter, and I went, God, I don't know. And you said, just say the 80s, because that's what <laughs> people of our, our august um, age, recently milestone We're made. from the 80s. We're from the 80s, but actually, I think it's true. I think I was a student, and I think it was love... Which is a very slender novel, yeah. about sort of four or five mm. in, I suppose, and it's very kind of gothic tale of a, a couple. And I didn't like it at all. I don't understand what's going on here, and I don't like it. I'm going back to Iris Murdoch immediately, <laughs> and yeah. then, luckily enough, a bit later, somebody gave me a copy of Wise Children, and that was all right. It's funny
0: that, isn't it? Because apparently, I, I'm, I was reading Edmund Gordon's uh, excellent biography Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, of Angela Carter, which published a couple of years ago. Called the invention of Angela Carter, and there was beef between um, Angela Carter and Iris Murdoch, and yet that's quite strange in a way because one of the writers who Carter most reminds me of is yeah. Iris Murdoch.
5: And actually, John, when you were saying you know that fairy tales hadn't been in the mainstream. One exception might be to think of Murdoch, of Murdoch because yeah, it's, it's more sort of sublimated in a way.
0: I just think there's, a,
1: there's now a kind of... It's, you can't really... and Everyone on the block knows that the original Cinderella was incredibly violent, and that you know, everybody's gone back to the original versions and that Sleeping Beauties a sort of a rape. But I think the key book that came out in around about six seventy 670, six seventy seven 77 was Bruno Bettelheim's The Uses of, the enchantment. of Enchantment. Mm. And Angela Carter hated that book because... And, in fact, is, you know, reputation, as I think, has not fared well. But, but, but it was about the idea that fairy tales were a way of, of, of offering comfort and succour for troubled children. And, it, of course, her view was not that at all.
5: She was a good hater, wasn't she?
3: Very good
1: at
0: hating. Yeah. Aretha, where did you, you... Can you remember the first cast that you read?
3: Yeah, the first book I read was The Bloody Chamber, and I was in my late teens, so I was about 18... And ever since about thirteen or fourteen, I'd been reading a lot of second-wave feminist novels. So I didn't recognise this as such, and and I took against it immediately. Even though I was very, I was very, I I was excited but troubled. I was excited because I really found this unsettling and beautiful writing and subversive. But then there was another part of me who thought, hang on, this reads in quite a pornographic way to me. There's a lot of sadomasochism and I don't quite know what, what her position is on this. I liked the alternative endings, the fact that women appear passive and suddenly they str- show an iron will you know, from nowhere. So I liked the subversions, but I didn't like a lot of the things I didn't recognize. So while I secretly loved these stories, I had to tell myself, this is not feminism as I know and recognize it. And I read all the other stuff. I was sort of mesmerized by it. And I read Wise Children and The Magic Toy Shop, and, and I didn't like any of them. I thought I didn't like, I didn't buy into the magic realism. I just thought they're really too baroque for me and not for me. So really, I went back to these stories, and I, and I thought, why do they trouble me so much? And I think the reason they trouble me so much is because she was so ahead of her time that she was playing. And I think she did this in life as well, this idea of masquerade. I think in the Gordon Gordon biography, she said she wasn't even the most reliable witness of her own life. There was a sort of masquerade going on in her own life. And I think the women in these stories have this sense of picking up gender, like being playful with it, putting it on. Like gender isn't something essential as You know, it's something that you can put on and take off like a dress. And that's quite radical, and that's very ahead of time. It's you the know, sort of time that we're dealing with gender fluidity now. Arifa,
0: okay. there's a thing Edmund Gordon says in the book where he says, this was one downside of Angela's rapidly expanding reputation. We're talking about approximately the time that The Bloody Chamber was published. The people she met from now on would often have a preconceived image of her in which they were passionately invested... And she wouldn't always correspond to the way they'd invented her for themselves.
4: Mm.
0: We've got a clip of Angela Carter in, I think, this is in the late 1980s, talking about her favourite TV programme and the role of women in art and women as artists.
4: It's very important in art. It's very important for women to retain their humanity. Um, it's very, very important that women should always be this. this isn't it. It's always one of my, my favorite television cop series is Cagney and Lacey, where the women very, very definitely are the, the upholders of, of um, ethics. They're the personification of, of certain kinds of ethics. But I don't I don't mind being regarded as the you know the, the reservoir of, of you know ethical like truth. But I would like to think it was because of me, not because of my gender. And I would also like to think that, you know, that people took seriously what I said, if you do regard me as a, you know, like, because the other thing apart, you, you, you're, you're always true and you're never believed, like Cassandra.
0: Right. It's really eerie to sit here and have, mm. have um, mm. Angela Carter's voice echoing around the room. You're always true and you're never believed. The, the sense of,
1: uh, as you were saying, fluidity, which she hints at there, that gender wasn't that's important to her no, that these characters move between in the same way that they move between human and animal, yes. and also between animal and, and mechanical and artificial. So, I mean, there's so much that she's packing into these. Stories. Rachel, could
0: you read us something from um, The Bloody Chamber, please?
2: Yes, so I'm going to read a bit, which exactly is what John's talking about this transgression, um, and it's the end of The Tiger's Bride. He will gobble you up. Nursery fears made flesh and sinew earliest and most archaic of fears, fear of devourment, the beast in his carnivorous bed of bone, and I, white, shaking, raw, approaching him, as if offering in myself the key to a peaceable kingdom in which his appetite need not be my extinction. He went still as stone, He was far more frightened of me than I was of him. I squatted on the wet straw and stretched out my hand. I was now within the field of force of his golden eyes. He growled at the back of his throat, lowered his head, sank onto his forepaws, snarled, showed me his red gullet, his yellow teeth. I never moved. He snuffed the air as if to smell my fear. He could not. Slowly, slowly, he began to drag his heavy, gleaming weight across the floor towards me. Tiles came crashing down from the roof. I heard them fall into the courtyard far below. The reverberations of his purring rocked the foundations of the house. The walls began to dance. I thought, it will all fall. Everything will disintegrate. And he dragged himself closer and closer to me until I felt the harsh velvet of his head against my hand. Then a tongue, a brace of sandpaper. He will lick the skin off me. And each stroke of his tongue ripped off skin after successive skin, all the skins of a life in the world, and left behind a nascent patina of shining hairs. My earrings turned back to water and trickled down my shoulders. I shrugged the drops of my beautiful fur. Yes, Angela.
0: So, so. so.
1: People don't talk enough about her language. I mean, it—it mm. it is so, not having read it for 20 years, going back to it, there is nothing quite like Angela Carter's no. language. The, the way that she addresses you directly as a sort of, in that sort of, folktale, fairy tale way and the, the words, I mean an extraordinary kind of vocabulary and the sense of, because I hadn't read Huisman, and, and we've only done it recently on the podcast, but certainly the early stories, that intense sensual, heady thing reminded me a lot
0: of Against Nature She was a great, um, and, and fan is not the right word, but, but she found Huisman's work very interesting indeed, because of course it's sensualism yeah. at the expense of every everything else, yeah. to all intents and purposes.
2: But she's also playing, as we were saying earlier, around seduction, too. So to read her, it's quite interesting to me that when we all read her as adolescents, we went, oh, no, I don't think yeah, so. It's too, yeah. too yeah. hard. <laughs> but, because she, but she's, again, in that debunking way, she's seeking to seduce us. She's casting magic. She's creating mm-hmm. illusions and play. And then she'll debunk it, too. Then there's be this... Sort of cynical, glamorous moment, or she'll say something quite bawdy, won't you? And you'll yeah. hear a roar with laughter. And so it's constantly this carnival is always in play, mm. I think. But seduction's a big part of it too, and it's in the language. It's like you say, potent. Um,
1: the, the phrase that she uses about it, the latent content of fairy tales, I like. But she also said something which I think is is sort of more helpful, which is that she tried to tell them as though that she had dreamed them herself, that she wasn't self-consciously in any scholarly way, trying to retell these stories. It was as this, this this was the stuff of her own subconscious.
5: This is exactly the question I wanted to ask, because I'm puzzled by it. She did say, I don't want these stories to seem like versions or yeah. cover stories. I want to take out the latent content. And mm. I thought, well okay, if you take her at her word, which is quite a sort of bold thing to do sometimes with Angela Carter. But um, what is the latent content in the stories that she's drawing out? What does she want us to know about them? I mean, I think in The Bloody Chamber, it's that the apparent victim who does escape the fate that has been destined for all the women before her Mm. is not as innocent as she seems and still gets Mm. away with it, I think. But what that kind of tells you, I'm not sure.
3: I think it's even darker than that for me. This is why I felt it was illegitimate. I couldn't like it. It's that, it's sort of 50 shades but with real teeth because I think what the the 17 year old here is doing is she's almost getting some sort of weird voluptuous pleasure from being with a sadist, and she secretly knows this man is a sadist because she describes him as having this great bulk, as being a sarcophagus, you know, leading, even before she sees him into room of torture implements. She has this knowledge that he is bad and evil and he is a bit of a monster and he is a sadist but she's like the terrible woman from you know the, the, the vanilla Anastasia from um It was really
5: weird reading this again with Fifty Shades. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it can't, because he's like, get, don't go ha- into my red room. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you can't not read you can't it, not back, read you
3: it. But, but here, you're sort of seeing that women, because second wave feminism didn't really go into sexual desire. It was all about equality and, and getting equality in the workplace. You know, wasn't it? The basics. So here, she's delving into, she's gone one stage further by saying, what about our sexual desire? Are we, enti- are we not feminist? Are we terrible if we have a rape fantasy, for example? You know, can we go there? Is that a dreadful thing for any feminist? I mean, these were radical... It, so this is my favourite part of The
2: Bloody Chamber, is that moment, and it's quite fleeting, I think, when she arrives and she begins to understand something around his erotic dominance. And her response is, oh, this is not uninteresting, <laughs> right? And to me, that's a carte moment because it's so nuanced. And you, nobody's prescribing anything. No one's yeah. saying, "Oh, you can't do this, and you've got to respond this way." It's all possible. But it's it's scary. all potential.
5: It's
3: almost a scary. And he goes thing. and looks
2: at a sort of dirty book
5: in the yes. library,
3: and thinks, "Oh, this is quite well." There's also Ooh, that, uh, that bit where he's this is interesting to me. They basically me. kind of started
5: yeah. to have sex, and he's sort of said, "Actually, I'm a bit busy yeah. right now," yeah. and left her kind of. <gasps> <gasps> yes. But, you know, not yes. with the terrible fear that are kind of... But this I is before you know, she realised
2: it's blue bearded, and then suddenly she's like, yeah. oh, God, you want to kill me? Right. To God, get it. I think the yeah. thing that's so
0: interesting about the stories, I don't know what I was expecting, but the thing that I wasn't expecting is, for me, the stories are about the exchange of power. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Mm,
5: Yes.
0: And even within each story, power will shift as it does in... All humor interactions between women and women, or men yep. and women, or men and men, that those stories are constantly shifting.
2: Now, did you tell me how to pronounce it earlier? The Sadian woman. So Sadian woman. The same year the Bloody Chamber is published, she writes a feminist reappraisal <laughs> called The Sadian Women. Is a consideration of the women which had a mixed desart. reviews,
1: let's say. I mean,
2: it was an ambitious idea, let's do a feminist <laughs> rewriting, right? But the central idea between it is around partly about gender, yeah. but it's also about desire and it's about saying it's the Cow lamb and, and the desire. tiger. Yes, it's you can't, you, the lamb's got to run with the tiger, but what's so and yeah. that's what her women
3: do, they run with the tigers, but the women, so and as Marquis de Sartre sometimes. You know. It, with Marquis de Sade, really, the man's in control and the, has the ultimate power, but here she's saying we can be the masochists, but actually we can then have this Exchange of power where suddenly we're dominant. So, in your mm. story that you've just read out, the woman becomes animal. There's the animal urge in her that he's but the wild but In yeah. the Bloody Chamber, there's an alternative happy ending with the non nuclear family. She runs off, her mother comes to rescue her on a white charger, and she goes off with a yeah, piano tuner. And ma- she has a three, you know, a the, piano tuner mother. Happy the, one of the world. very
1: few examples of family doing good in an Angela Carter universe. You know, usually the family are there, the gra- grandmothers in particular. Can we come
3: back to
5: Mother's, when you've read your I just Just to
1: give you that that idea of of how how she reverses things. This is one paragraph at the end of the shortest story in the book, The Snow Child. So the girl picks a rose, pricks her finger on a thorn, bleeds, screams, falls. Weeping, the count got off his horse, unfastened his breeches, and thrust his virile member into the dead girl. The countess reined in her stamping mare and watched him narrowly. He was soon finished. Then the girl began to melt. Soon there was nothing left of her but a feather a bird might have dropped, a bloodstain like the trace of a fox's kill on the snow and the rose she had pulled off the bush. Now the countess had all her clothes on again. With her long hand she stroked her furs. The count picked up the rose, bowed and handed it to his wife. When she touched it, she dropped it. It bites, she said.
3: I was actually I reread read that on the train here,
1: and I was actually really shocked by it. Mm. So, so you've got death, sex with a dead girl, transformation, and then the girl winning because actually the rose bites. It's just, it's kind of and the whole collection. Wife? Carter yes. is always yes. very
0: interested in looking at. It seems to me looking at the constituent parts of the thing that you think you know, yeah. and saying <laughs> what would happen if I put these in a different order. What would happen if I turn this upside down? Put it in a different direction. This is a recording of Carter talking about uh, the film adaptation of The Company of Wolves, which we'll talk about a little in a minute, but let's just hear her now talking about how she feels about um, grandmothers.
4: When my grandmother used to tell me the story of Red Riding Hood when I was a very little girl, um, a very, very little girl, um, she used to tell it me with actions, And she had no truck with all the consoling versions of it, where the woodcutter comes and opens the wolf up. Um, She believed in ending it on um, the wolf eating Red Riding Hood. And when she came to the bit where it says, and then he leapt upon her and gobbled her all up, she used to leap upon me and pretend to gobble me all up. And I thought this was wonderful. I thought this was quite ecstatic. I used to squeak and shiver and, and say, oh, granny, granny, do it again. And very often to please me she would um and therefore though i may have um you know i personally may have an image of grandmothers as very aggressive people i I tend not to think of wolves in the same way
0: i was saying case for the prosecution yeah (laughs) i was saying to we were saying earlier alex weren't we about being from the 80s yeah. You know, I and Arifa, when you were saying that you didn't like Carter at first, I had read very little Carter before the start of this year, but knowing that like when we'd record an episode of Batlisted, especially one in public, it's like doing the worst viver of all time. Yeah. You know, I not that I've ever done a viver, but you're you're you want to be on top of the subject. So I've been the, working my way through quite The fear a few. of having the person say you know nothing of my work. Well, but, <laughs> but, but, but what I want to say is so, when, and when I started reading my way through them, I read The Magic Toy Shop first, and then I read Knights um, of the Circus. Okay. Okay. And I, while reading Knights of the Circus, I tweeted the following on March the 10th. <laughs> and I'm going to read what I tweeted. I'm reporting, I'm, with a sense, slight sense of shame and pride intermingled. I am reading a famous novel of the 1980s, which, 150 pages in, feels like a string of creative writing assignments from a precocious student who had been interviewed uncomfortably on Blue Peter, age 12, just before going up to Cambridge, leaving many viewers vaguely disturbed. (laughs) I had literally dozens of people saying, who is it? Is it Salman Rushdie? Is it Ian McEwan? Yeah. Is it Angela Carter? Oh, and then Richard Kelly, our former guest Richard Kelly, said brilliantly, well, it could be anyone, because what you've described is the dominant mode of British fiction in the early 1980s. That's so true. And it, what, coming know? to her now, it actually reminded me why I struggled with making the jump to literary fiction in my late teens, because magical realism which we could see this as magical realism yeah. it's tremendously evocative of what was considered uh ambitious fiction and at this, that was call, time. this was a core this was a core text and yet it? the more i read the more i thought well of course she didn't want to be called a magical no. realist no. She's not really a magical she realist. She did not
2: tickled anything,
5: though, did she? No. I mean, she really didn't.
2: And also, perhaps, a bit almost... Maybe she, again, sets something up and debunks it. It was the thing that John was saying about something like Wise Children.
1: Yes, The demotic Brilliant.
2: voice is so Brilliant. strong, isn't it? And, and the, totally
1: different. I mean, you, you know, you, I guess you could see with the, the kind of the, the, the reversals and the... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, I, it's my favourite of her, her I'm books. Um, but that just be my taste in fiction. Although I do love The Bloody Chamber and I sort of loved it more going back to it than I remember loving it at the time. As um, I still will go on to Company of Wolves, but I still have a very heavy memory of the movie that slightly occludes my, or had occluded until he reread it. But I, no, I, I, think you're, I think you're right. I think Knights of the Circus, I, although I think that is a sort of, cruel but fair assessment of the book.
0: Just how I felt while I was reading yes. it, I have revised my opinion. Yes. I, I am I think prepared to it, I, tweet something repentant well, what if would that will make it all right. You haven't read... You I haven't read... Tweet. Now I would say "Nights at the Circus is the novel which is most... most plays into the hands of Carter's detractors, which is that it is narratively negligent, but... Mm. Full of ideas that, that seem to exist only within other books. Which was a criticism like that I'm not making. Which is why I think, it I think the narrative negligence the is not
1: there in Wise Children, which I think is beautifully yes, structured. I and, prefer and, and Wise and Children. Also makes you think what might she have gone on to write? I mean, and she, was 50, nice. she was 51 yeah, when you she need died. To
2: save that tweet to draft, yeah. Sandy. And also there's a wisdom in it the yes. moment to, to come and an under- also it's fun, funny
1: funny 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 yeah. the two, it's
0: the really two. So
1: yeah. funny. Hey, I heard Dora Bryan read the audio book ages ago when they're very early and it was the book that made me think, well, maybe there is something in audiobooks after all. It Actually, is... but
3: the audio audiobook
5: it Chambers is, is brilliant. Is it? But yeah, it's... with um, Amelia Fox. Reads oh, no. She I lends
2: herself absolutely to the spoken fantastic. word, don't you mm. think? Yeah, Almost, yeah I do. um, It doesn't seem strange to me that she'd write fairy tales of folk songs or any of those things, uh-huh. because it that she writes for the spoken word, I think. Yeah. That makes her alive. It's right, Rachel, sure. you,
0: would you be kind enough? I know you brought along another little thing to read us. As I said at the top, you are a resident of the city of Bath in Avon.
2: A Bathonian.
0: So Angela Carter was living in Bath Bath when she was at least writing some of the stories in the Bloody Chamber and formulating some of the stories in the Bloody Chamber. And she wrote an essay about Bath, didn't she? She
2: did write an essay about Bath. And it's published in the collection of her journalism, which is called Nothing Sacred, and is published by Virago, as all of her work is, I think, isn't it? published in New Society in 1975 and I found a little bit to read about Bath and what I quite like about it and what we haven't really discussed because there's so much to discuss is I think what Carter's always interested in and it's related to power actually is paradox so that's everything is paradoxical everything is dual and that's partly what I love about her and she brings that shrewd assessment to our own dear city (laughs) the haunting silences of Bath are those with which the English compose intimacies. The uselessness of the city contributes both to its charm and to its poignancy, which is part of its charm. It was not built to assert the preeminence of a particular family or the power of a certain region. It had no major industry in the 18th century except tourism. The gentleman whose tastes this city was built speculatively to satisfy had no interest in labour as such, only in his profits from a labour he hoped would take place as far away from his pleasures as is possible. Bath was built to be happy in, which accounts for its innocence and its ineradicable melancholy. Bath in its romantic, disheveled loveliness is no longer the city the woods built. Two hundred years of the history of taste have modified the crisp outlines of its rational harmony, and this has changed its appearance far more than time itself has done. Our perceptions of the city are modified by those of everybody else who has ever been here and thought that it was beautiful. It is more than the sum of its parts." Now, what I quite like was that she for, you, for, rest, for you, right?
0: Carter is synonymous with Bath. But for me, and backlisted listeners will appreciate why this is a special moment, she is synonymous with Croydon. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, I try and make mentions of Croydon in every single one of these podcasts. Uh, hooray, I've succeeded. Uh, her first job after she left school was as a reporter on the Croydon Advertiser. Yes. And uh, that was in the uh, late 1950s and early 1960s. And one of the wonderful things in Edmund Gordon's um, biography is he's gone through back issues of the Croydon Advertiser to find the sort of things that Angela Carter was writing about then. And he says even at the age of 19, she starts... She's there for a year, and at the start, it's all quite formal. And even by the end of that year... She's beginning to push at the form of what you would find in a local newspaper <laughs> in 1960, <laughs> in Croydon. Um, but, Alex, you were saying she is also synonymous... We've mentioned Bath, we mentioned Croydon. She's synonymous with...?
5: Journalism. Is that no. what you want no. to are oh, Eastbourne. Eastbourne, she was born in Eastbourne. So On my birthday. We'd share a birthday.
0: 7th of May, where... And she was born in Eastbourne.
4: Yeah.
0: And, um... One of the things about her is she travelled, it seems to me anyway, she travelled incredibly widely once she could. But she's bringing in influences, not just literary influences, which is the thing she was sometimes criticised for, but she travels around the world. She spends a lot of time when she's young in Japan. She travels across the Well, she kind of runs away
5: all the time. That's part of it, isn't it? She runs away all the time. Hmm. So when you're saying it, there she is in Croydon, she's 19... And why I earlier mentioned mothers, because the mother is such an important, and as you say, John, such a triumphantly brilliant figure in in, um, the Bluebeard story, in in, um, The Bloody Chamber. But actually, in life, I found that part of Edmund's biography absolutely horrifying, because she'd had this intense, close relationship with her mother. Her mother had had great hopes for her, but it wasn't simply a sort of question of a mother pushing a, a reluctant daughter forward. She was sort of in cahoots with it she was intrusive. as well. She was, she, was, wasn't too, she was intrusive, but she was very much loved back by Angela, who at some point just kind of thought, no, can't I do mean, this anymore, and ran away. Ran away to Croydon, got married. Intrusive husband, ran away to Japan, yeah. left her wedding ring. She did something crazy with her wedding ring. Didn't she sort of left it on a cafe table yeah. in the airport, that sort of stuff.
2: She likes itinerance too, doesn't she? Mm. That rolling, even in the language, that rolling festival of her language, you get caught up all the time in this travelling circus. That's what she is, I think, don't
3: you? Mm.
0: So I've got a copy here of... (gasps) I said it was like taking a vibe. Look, everyone, I've got a copy of the York Notes for the Bloody (laughs) Tone. Yay! (laughs) And this was published about ten years ago. And I was flicking through it on the train on the way up to, to dazzle you with my. <laughs> with my <erudition. laughs> what are the themes? Tell us what the well, themes are. Here's the thing, and this is the no sort doubt. of the final major this point I want to make. <laughs> right, uh, the final point major point I want to make, I'll ask you about. So this was, and these notes were written 10 years ago. And in the introduction, the introduction basically says, Angela Carter was writing in a period where issues facing feminism were very much at the, in the in the newspapers and in society, but you young people won't realise that because you're not bothered about those issues anymore because they've sort of gone away. Was... Is that accurate? Maybe it was accurate. <laughs> it, maybe it was accurate in, Thank you. In notes. 2005, yeah, it's not accurate. It's a bit
1: like reading the rough guide to Syria, you know, like, <laughs> where it says, you know, well, I was reading just yesterday that. that Top holiday, you know. If you want a nice place to hang out, Holmes is a great city for, for, for Western people to. But she you know.
3: would be quite
2: complicated. Ten
1: years is a long time.
2: Yeah, and she, but she would be quite complicated in the current conversation yeah. because it's too, it's it's too prescriptive. Oh, and she everyone could stand all the group telling what thinking to think. And all that, and she'd fall into the oh, you know, sort of be stop being such a victim. Get up, take him on, have him, have him yourself. So seduce him do you mean her mm. whole energy is around saying let's up- upend that I don't know whether there was that period of time when these things weren't relevant there might have been in about year 2000 we all thought the battles are done but they...
0: do you think she, her voice now Aretha mm. that in the light of what we were saying earlier about how she fits in some ways and in other ways she doesn't fit and she wouldn't want to fit what is there? I'm Sorry, it's a big question to ask. But what is in in what is there in her writing now, which speaks loud and clear in 2018 to issues that that women have to deal with?
3: Well, I think I touched on all of us have to deal with. I, I think I touched on it a bit earlier, but I really see it in her in in this book of short stories, is the the things she was thinking then, the sort of things that we're thinking about now about women women playing with gender also I saw when I reread this our selfie culture quite a lot our obsessive almost narcissistic yeah Yeah, yeah. narcissistic need to see our own reflections on on social media Mm -hmm. and I know that narcissistic thing has been there ever since Narcissus. but she this book is a really weird summation of some or, or part of it has got to do with selfie culture and seeing yourself reflected in but other people. But also puberty,
1: don't you think that uh, come at the moment of of, become, of adulthood, of making that transition from childhood to adulthood, where yeah. you where you're you become particularly interested it's, in in how you're seen and how you see yourself. Yeah.
3: yeah. But also the biggest thing is this idea that gender might be separate from biology. Now, that is an idea of today. It's not an idea mm-hmm. of 1979 mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. all. That really is today's idea. So much so that, you know, feminists such as Jermaine Greer having a really difficult time getting their head, not just Jermaine Greer, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Jenny Murray, there's a whole... I can't call them an entire generation. There's many feminists that I admire that are having a difficult time around around this concept of gender not being tied completely. In really the we- anybody who was more to grips...
5: Conquer with the idea of mutation yeah. and morph- morphing
3: play.
1: And, it, and play and pleasure and pleasure, in the way that older, older feminists went, were looking at her work. Andrea Dworkin yeah. really didn't like her work because she thought that fairy tales were all the, the, the child care wing of patriarchy and that <laughs> they were used to, to suppress and, to, and just, to reduce the woman's role and their, their ability to imagine themselves. And also, so she,
2: she's not. She, she's not p- politically prescriptive, Carter, particularly in the bloody chamber. Is she? she's not, yeah. You're not going to mount a barricade <laughs> waving the bloody chamber because you're going to have to sit down and say, actually, it's quite complicated.
5: Really? Alex, <laughs> Hopper, we, we,
0: we've got time for one more extract from Angela Carter's work.
5: Well, so the reason I said, when you said what she's synonymous with journalism is because you'd asked us to bring something that wasn't from the bloody chamber. And I thought, well, I just love her journalism very much and I found this thing which I knew she'd written about and I looked it up and here it is from the LRB uh, in 1985, a review of three books about food and it's just the thought that you could write this now, the amazingly ruthless piece of snobbery at the end, (laughs) so I'm just going to quickly read this Piggery Triumphant has invaded even the pages of The Guardian hitherto synonymous with non-conformist sobriety. Instead of its previous modest column of recipes and restaurant reviews, the paper now boasts an entire page devoted to food and wine once a week. Which, I mean, can you imagine? Now there's whole magazine. Anyway, <laughs> more space than it gives to movies, as much as it customarily gives to books, Piggery has spawned a glossy bi-monthly a la carte, a gastronomic penthouse, devoted to glamour photography, the subject of which is not the female body imaged as if it were good enough to eat, but the food photographed according to the conventions of the pinup. Oh, that coconut kirsch roulade in the first issue. If, as Levi-Strauss once opined, to eat is to fuck, then that coconut roulade is just asking for it. (laughs) Even if the true foodie knows there is not something, something not quite, not quite... About a coconut kirsch foulade as a concept. It's just a bit, just a bit (laughs) Streatham. Its vowels are subtly wrong. It is probably related to a Black Forest gatto.
4: She's <laughs> <laughs> a genius. She's a genius.
5: Oh. You wouldn't write that now, would you? No, because you get the below the line from Scott. No. Um,
1: but it's I'm funny. quite right. She's right one, yeah, so one, she one of my. One of my favourite essays of hers is, is where she um, she outs D.H. Lawrence as a cross dresser. She goes through his obsession with women's clothes and the details of women's clothes. It's just, it's one of the most, It's it's both. A very, very funny piece of, of, but also a brilliant bit of forensic criticism. Because you cannot read Lawrence's novels. Uh, I know you, wouldn't, you don't choose to anyway, Andy, but you can't read them again without, kind of without noticing how much there is about women's clothing in there. <laughs> anyway, unfortunately, I think that is where we're going to have to leave it. Huge thanks to Arifa and to Rachel and to Alex. To Nikki, our producer...
0: You'll be able to download the podcast, plus follow up all the linked clips and suggestions for further reading on our website, backlisted.fm. And, of course, you can still contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless. Uh, we'd like to thank the audience here in Bath who have smiled and laughed and only one of them looks angry, and that's, a good, that's always a good result. Um, so we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. If so, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Yes, thank you all for coming. We'll be recording another one of these, not in Bath, in a fortnight's time. But and then, until then, thank you. Good night.
0: Get Carter, everyone.
1: prefer to listen to backlisted without adverts you can sign up to our patreon it's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted as well as getting the show early you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call locklisted which is andy me and nikki talking about the books music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight